Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Episode 36, The Dublin Story Grand Slam, Part 2. Hello everyone, welcome back to the second half of the Grand Slam. Welcome to the Dublin Story Slam podcast. My name is Julian Clancy and I'm the producer of the Dublin Story Slam. And in this episode of the podcast, you're going to hear part two of the Dublin Story Grand Slam, recorded live on stage at the Abbey Theatre on December the 11th. It was an incredible evening, but it was also a very cold and freezing evening. There was, in fact, a weather warning in place. We had an orange weather warning, which in Ireland is enough to pretty much immobilise the entire city. But I think we were also all so desperate to get to the show that uh, even frozen footpaths and uh, maybe a lack of taxis were, were not going to stop us. So... You are going to join your host for the rest of this show, Mr. Colm O'Regan. Occasionally you might hear a little bit of laughter there on the side. That is Sharon Mannion, who is our musical timekeeper. She is playing the accordion. And of course you can capture Sharon on stage as our other host of the Dublin Story Slam. Okay, so get cosy in your seats. Maybe pour yourself that little second glass of something special. And we will see you on the tail end of this. Here is your host, Mr. Colm O'Regan. How are you all feeling? Uh, just to confirm, uh, we've had it scientifically checked and measured. Tis cold. Uh, it's not just you. Uh, it's a bit cold, all right. And, but the main thing is, is, the stories are going to warm us up in the second half. No, they're not, Colm. That doesn't work. That's not physics. They will. They will. Um, also, to say, our winner tonight will get a year's tickets to the Dublin Story Slam. I'm, right? So now we're only doing. <laughs> I didn't I think... know I could do that. Yeah. <laughs> the spirit took you there. Jesus, imagine what you'd have done with the, if the accordion, if we told them they were going to win a car, you'd have ripped the thing apart. Uh... <laughs> so. We're all back in the room, and I think it's actually warmed up a little bit now. Um, so I want you to give a huge welcome to our first storyteller of the second half. Uh, welcome to the stage, Aisha Saida. Welcome, Aisha. That's all right, you're okay. I moved to Dublin on a cold January day, nine years ago. I had nothing but a job and a coat that was not fitting for the Irish weather. (laughs) 
safe to say uh, that I was experiencing the blues, but also we know what January is like here. There is a collective fear and a collective hangover. So um, to avoid or to settle myself in, I worked long hours uh, to avoid going back to an empty room and a cold bed. On one of the nights while I was working late, I decided to go on the DSPCA website and started looking at rescue dogs. And um, I was scrolling through it and, you know, just, just why not? I have nothing better to do. It's either work or I do this. And I came across the most handsomest of little boys called Perseus. I knew right there and then I wanted him. And I've been told this many times that I'm quite stubborn, but I'd like to say it, I, I know what I want. So Perseus, I wanted. I had to have him. And I was, um, my flatmate at the time, Neil, uh, was also a colleague and now is a brother from another mother. And I told him about this idea. And the thing with my friendship with Neil is that every single time one of us comes up with an absolutely absurd idea, the other person is just like, yes, let's make this happen. And Perseus was one of our best absurd ideas. Um, so as, as we decided to do that, we looked through our lease and saw that it said, no pets. Okay, grand. Uh, we benched the idea. But I was just like, you know what? We'll see where this goes. Six months later, um, our landlord was selling the property and gave us some leeway. And they're like, we can you know, reduce your rent, but Neil and I saw a golden opportunity. I remember when I saw that email, both of us looked up from our screens at work and were like, we know what we're gonna ask. So we asked for a doggo and we got the green light. We did everything within our capacity to make sure that we were ready for Perseus, but I remember my hands shaking with excitement when I went back on that website because it was six months later. What are the chances that Perseus still needs a home? But he was a handsome little guy. He would definitely not be available. I scrolled and I scrolled, and as I scrolled, I lost a bit of hope, but I held on to a little bit of hope. Perseus was the last and only dog on the last page. I knew that it was meant to be. So we went to go see him in Port Leash, Neil and myself. Uh, figuring out how we're gonna do this, we're just gonna go with it. And I saw, as much as I was in love with him, I saw Neil also fall in love with Percy. I saw a new side to this person that I called a friend. But on the car ride back, um, the reality of that decision weighed on me, and I shared this with Neil. Was I ready? I had never, ever had a pet, or a dog for that, sake, but for that matter. Um, would I be a good enough parent? Um, I was scared and I let him know all of this. And on top of that, we were gonna co-parent him. We had made the decision that if we went our separate ways, uh, Neil would get to keep him. So yes, I signed up for heartbreak well in advance. But it was Percy. Um, Percy is a gentle Irish boy. He is the silliest and also the cheekiest and also the smartest. Um, I remember when I first met him, his markings were like no other. I, I almost, the best way that I can describe it is wearing Timberland boots uh, while you walk outside and there's a fresh snow, like fresh snowfall as 
you know, uh, on the concrete, the browns, the blacks, and the whites. They all just mesh so beautifully together on his face that it just, it just made me fall even deeper in love with him. Um, Percy was a howler, he was vocal. You know how huskies are. And I wanted a big dog because I was like, you know what, I live in Dublin. I, don't, I wanna be walking the streets with a big dog that can protect me. And Percy was scared of umbrellas, of plastic bags, everything that you could possibly imagine. I had to protect Percy where he was just like, what's happening? But still, Percy was my listener, he was my protector. He was also an escape artist. One night, I remember, um, outside of our gaff, I, went, I stepped outside, and it was pissing it down on a Friday, and it was windy. Sure, we all know. Um, and I stepped outside, and Percy would normally just be chilling with me, seeing like, okay, mom's stepping out for a smoke, or just getting some fresh air. And our patio door, which led to the main road, because we had a little patio, uh, had swung open because of the wind. This boy, knew his chance. In a millisecond, he just darted out. And I'm there, no shoes, no coat, no keys, in a onesie. <laughs> the way I ran after him, and my heart stopped because I realized in that moment how much I loved him. Because with each cry, I could hear my, my voice weaken as is now, um, because I just wanted to find him. I just wanted to make sure he was okay. And yes, I did find him. He was, I found him tugging at the skirt of a lovely, of a lovely lady working the corner. And he was harassing her. And I'm like, I'm so sorry, I have no idea what's going on. Grabbed him by the collar and bought him home. But that was a lesson for me of how much I loved him. Um, it came to the point where eventually I had to part ways with, with Percy because Neil and Naomi, uh, his girlfriend, well, his wife now, um, found a wonderful farmhouse in Cavan. And I realized that I could never, ever give Percy that quality of life. So we went our separate ways. Now, that is the pain that I live with. It is a pain that I never sat with until I gave myself the permission to. Um, and then the pandemic hit. So I didn't get to see him for over two years, even though we lived in the same country. And um, I was able to see him this summer. Uh, after two years, it was a beautiful, beautiful reunion. Um, but I knew something was off about Percy. I mean, I've spent enough time with him. He has seen me at my worst, and I have seen him at his worst. But I knew something was off. I left that reunion with a heavy heart. A month after that, um, I received a phone call from Neil. I knew when I got a call, when I got the call that something was up, my heart stopped exactly the same way when he had darted out of my door that night, that night where it was pissing it down and I was in a fucking onesie running after him. And I knew it was Percy. And Neil told me that there was some cancerous growth that was escalating and he was deteriorating badly. Um, he couldn't tell me straight up because he said, I think it's good that you come see him, which I knew was that I had to come say goodbye. The reality of that mixed with the guilt and the shame of being like, I wasn't a good enough mother to him. I could have taken him out for more walks. Um, I felt guilt for the separation. I felt guilt for abandoning him. I felt the guilt for not being able to see him for two years and only seeing him while he was declining. But I had to do something. So I went up to Cavan and I spent time with my boy. 
It was hard. I will distinctly remember the last time he slept in my bed while I was up in Cavan. And uh, the jingle of his collar every time he'd shake off his sleep and do a, like his yawn would be a squeal that would make Michael Jackson literally turn in his grave. I will remember that. And I remember when I was saying goodbye to him, I had my head on his, on his forehead and my tears were falling onto his nose, onto his beautiful, beautiful markings. And I told him, uh, that I loved him very much. And uh, we went, uh, then I had to come back to Dublin. Percy's sunset was in October. And my therapist says that I have to try and talk about him. I can't bring myself to talk about him, but this is me trying my best, sorry. Um, I also realized that grief is something uh, that not a, a lot of us go through but a lot of us don't know what to do with it because it is such a personal, personal journey. Um, but the way that I have navigated it or I'm trying to navigate is that the only way through grief is to go through it and see what remains and that in itself is a process because people will not understand your grief, especially I've had people tell me, but it was just a dog, which is, so hurtful, but I cannot expect anyone to understand what my heart has experienced and is continuing to experience. Because Percy was a big part of my journey here, and one thing I do wanna say, his name was Perseus, which is a Greek god, uh, a Greek hero and a half god, and we decided to stick with his name, which is Perseus. Um, and we'd call him Percy. We would call him anything that started with the, like any word that started with the letter P, like Pigglesworth, Premier Dog, Piggly Woo, Precious, Parsley, everything, and he would respond to it. But when it comes to grief, you have to go through it to be able to understand what remains. And I know what remains is a precious, precious, precious love that I will carry with me. For as long as I live, um, and this is me trying my best, thank you, Percy, for getting me through today, for being here while I needed someone to call my own in a place that felt so unfamiliar, and I want you to know that I love you. You will always be my baby boy, and I hope you're happy. Thank you. Aisha Saida there. Oh, poor Percy. Oh, I, I, I'm thinking about, um, it's funny talking about, you know, when you've got the dog and then you call him every other name under the sun. We had a dog called Zephyr, and that dog became the name of every dog that you ever saw. I never did, I lived as all as one uh, trademark dog, so my father would call every dog he met for 20 years, Zephyr, like that. It's just, oh, dogs. Anyway, um, uh, tell us about a precious thing you lost or found in 2022. Found my talent for entertaining the over 80s with my DJing on their daily walks in hospital. I've also developed an undying love for the song Sweet Caroline by the precious Neil Diamond. Ah. I wonder do you drop a few grime hits in as well too in between just to, I don't know, they like this, they like this. Uh, uh, Let's see what else we have here. Uh, a kind act, something that was precious. My husband popped over to my neighbor's house while she was out and shoveled all the snow from her driveway today. She was thrilled. Her husband died two weeks ago. 
oh, well done that person. And yeah, and we probably should, shouldn't wait for the council to sweep the snow outside our own house, so we could probably do it ourselves. Um, still though, I don't know about the insurance. Like that's, that's, what, that's the way we think here. <laughs> oh, did, did you sweep it then and somebody'd fall and they'd have their hand up. You know, that's, that's, that's the way we... <laughs> now, our second storyteller of the second half. Uh, and get that big, huge applause going again and welcome them to the stage. They're right at the mic uh, when you're still applauding. Will you give a huge welcome to Kieran Casey? Hey, folks, how are we doing? Um, I'm going to talk about a creature that you don't usually associate with the word uh, precious. There is 400 million of them in the world, um, and as the natural world is falling apart around us, these fellas are thriving, unfortunately, really. Um, generally in man-made urban environments, it's the humble pigeon, and <laughs> a special a special pigeon called JJ. So we, myself and my partner, uh, Mary, her cousin Jill, kindly offered us her apartment in La Hinch in 2021 in June. Um, we were going to work from home from there for a few weeks just to get away from the kind of grim lockdowns in Dublin. So we went down and we got lucky with the weather. So we were just working away during the day and going like walking down the prom and in the beach in the evenings. Um, so because the weather was good, we had the door, the balcony open all day long just to let the fresh air in. And I heard a bit of a fluttering one day anyway, and I kind of went out to investigate, and there was a pigeon after landing on the balcony. Um, should point out at this stage that there's no pigeons in La Hinch. So <laughs> I, I think it's because it's coastal, that would be the obvious reason. But I have another theory that there are so many crusties and hippies in La Hinch that the pigeons don't like the smell of the place. <laughs> so you could tell straight away this wasn't your run-of-the-mill pigeon. Like, he had a bit of a swagger about him. Like, he knew how to carry himself. He, um, he was in great condition. He had kind of unusual colouring. Um, he was ver very used to human contact, you could tell. And then he had a tag on his foot as well, so... I thought it was a bit weird, so I took a few photos, and we went off for dinner, and we met our mate, Jill, and she was saying, um, oh, that's a racing pigeon, and you can look up the details of the tag on the Pigeon Fancy or website, or whatever it's called. <laughs> so, uh, so I was kind of intrigued in, so I was like, right, I'm gonna go back and get stuck into this now, and got, uh, <laughs> got, Got a good bit closer to JJ, and he was totally cool with it. And um, so I got the details. I put it up on the system. And the system is kind of like, let's say, if an adopted person was looking for their birth parents, you put the information out there, but they have to come to you, the pigeon fancier, like. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I put the details in. And it didn't take long. It was about a half an hour. And this fella, Tom from East Wall, rang me. And I could tell he was a die-hard dub, like a fucking Jackie, if you ever talked to him. <laughs> um, he, he was a gas. We were getting on grand anyway, and he was, uh, he was delighted that we had his pigeon, but he was kind of like, are you sure it's JJ? And I was like, well, <laughs> he's like, 
his fucking details and his tag match your fucking details. It'd be some coincidence if it wasn't. So he was telling me that the week before he had sent 12 pigeons to Penzance in Cornwall in the UK and only two of them had come home. So he said it was a big, there was a big incident like and after the call I looked it up and this was the biggest accident that's ever happened in the history of pigeon racing. <laughs> right? So like it was doomsday for the pigeon folk. It was like imagine the movie Armageddon, but without a meteor, it's just a shitload of pigeons. <laughs> so, um, so what? Oh yeah. So they released. The weather was good today. They released the pigeons, and uh, everything was going tickety boo until it wasn't. And they reckon between ten and fifteen thousand prize pigeons were lost that day. Um, they were blown all over Europe. Um, <laughs> there, was, uh, there was lads landed in the Netherlands, in, in, in Germany, and one, like, one real cute pigeon whore was after going to the Canary Islands. <laughs> so... So they're still not sure what happened, like, but they reckon it was a geological event, like a solar storm, right, which affected the Earth's magnetic field, which is what pigeon used use to navigate. So you're getting two for one here, you're getting a story and a bit of education too. <laughs> so of the 250,000 pigeons that was released in the UK that day across several locations, 15,000 of them, got lost, and one of those was blown 500 kilometers northwest to our balcony in Hinch. <laughs> so back to Tom anyway, and he was full of questions about his condition and how we were looking after him. And he was like, what are you feeding him? And uh, I was like, we're giving him a bit of, bit, giving him a bit of muesli, like. <laughs> uh, we, we were only giving him muesli because that was the thing that looked most like bird feed that we had, like. <laughs> He, se he seemed to be enjoying it, to be fair. He, 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 had, a pro he had a problem with the raisins, all right? He went into the raisins. But, um, so Tom was mad to get his pigeon back, obviously. No, he, but he didn't drive, which is another sign of a true dub, I think. Uh, <laughs> so he was like, can I get a train to La Hinch? And I was like, yeah, man, it's a train and about three buses. Like, you're going to be a week getting down here. So we ruled that one out. Um, the next option then was, oh yeah, he wanted me to throw him into the air to see if he'd, <laughs> he'd take, <laughs> see if he'd take back off back to Dublin. And I was like, do you know what? He's, he's, he's looking a bit weak, man, to be honest. I don't know, is he up to it? And there was like mad westerly winds. So we kind of left it that right. We'll try over the next few days to launch him. I said, I'll, 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 I'll feed him up and we'll check out in the conditions and what's going on. So, um, obviously, you know, at this stage, myself and Mary were bonding most fierce with the, with the pigeon, like, and, uh, like, like myself, he was a pure flirt with the women, and sp specifically my fiance, actually. Um, so, Mary would feed him and she'd close the balcony door and he'd start pecking at the door so she'd come out again. Um, if she left the room, he had a big problem with that. He'd start fluttering against the window until she came back. 
Um, we've got some bird seed at this stage because he was after eating a soda of all our muesli. Uh, so he was actually literally eating out of our hands at this stage. Um, we had a nice little routine in the morning where he'd be sunbathing on a windowsill across the way and I'd come out to feed him and he'd fly over for the breakfast. Um, and like, even if we were going out in the car, he'd uh, come down and he'd follow you around the car park. It, it was like having a little pup, like, to be honest with you. So, what was, oh yeah. So anyway, I was unexpectedly called back to work in Dublin. So I rang Tom and I said, look, I'm coming up the road unexpectedly. This is probably our best chance to get the pigeon back to you. Like, can I bring him in the car? What's the story? And he was like, yeah. He, and he gave me some tips on how to catch him. And he said, put him into something like a shoebox and he should be fine. And um, that was grand. So I, we did like a wine box, so I put him into that. And off he went to Dublin anyway. Um, we stopped at that famous landmark, the Barack Obama Plaza. <laughs> USA. Uh, and I, I resisted my urge of my usual routine, was, which was getting a snack box from Supermax, because I didn't want to be eating another bird in front of JJ. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so uh, on, on, onwards to Dublin anyway, and Tom had picked the maddest place to meet, like, so he was like, we'll meet at the Hard Rock Cafe on Fleet Street. <laughs> it's like, that, that, re that really tickled me, like a fellow who didn't know where Le Hinch was, but he knew where the Hard Rock Cafe was. So I was about 20 minutes away from there anyway, and I gave him a buzz, and I was like, Tom, I'm nearly there, man, and he was like, do you know what? I'm not coming in at all. I was like, what the fuck? I was like, this, this fellow's cheeky. Like, I was doing all the work in this relationship. Um, but he said, no, the reason I'm not coming in is you can just throw him up in the air when he's back in Dublin and he'll find his way back. So I was like, grand. He was like, take him up to a multi-story car park. So I went up. <laughs> so I went up to uh, Jervis Street anyway, up to the top. And... Uh, <laughs> And uh, up to the top anyway, and kind of took him out of his box, and he was kind of getting a bit emotional at this stage. And we, we had a bit of a chat anyway, and I sent him off. And like, I don't have children, but it kind of felt like you were dropping your only child to the airport as they were moving to Australia. That was... <laughs> so I rang Tom, I said, he's on the way. And I said, uh, give me a show when he gets in, please, because I just want to make sure he's safe. <laughs> So uh, I'd taken note of the time that he left, and Tom rang me back anyway. He was down the shops getting his messages, and by the time he got back, the, uh, JJ was back, and uh, he was after timing it as well. So it took him six minutes to get from Jervis to his home place in East Wall after all that mad adventure he'd been on, which is seriously impressive. Like, um, So Tom was saying that I'm not a man for the prayers, but the next time I'm passing the church, I'll say a rosary for you. <laughs> and uh, he was saying that uh, if he, he was planning to breed JJ because he was one of his better pigeons, and he said if he had any kids, he'd name one of them after me. <laughs> so I like to think there's a bald pigeon flying around these swall called Karen. Thanks, folks.
I would love if we could raise a spotlight at the back of the room and JJ would be lit up. Uh, a small little pigeon tear in his cheek and, and he's just like cooing the words, good job. And, for any regular audience members, you will know that uh, one of the things I love about the story slam, and I say this often, is it's an opportunity for a line to appear, a sequence of words that you will rarely or may never have heard before or will have no reason to hear it again. There was a number of those in Kieran's story, but particularly this stark phrase, there's no pigeons in La Hinch. Like just <laughs> the new Cullum Tobin novel. Like, you know, heart-wrenching heart New York Times, you know. Like, Right, okay, our final storyteller of the night. And she has waited all night to tell her stories. We're going to give her an extra special welcome. And we're delighted to have her back. Will you give a huge round of applause to Mairead Murphy? Have you ever been at a crossroads in your life? Sometimes it's easier to see them in the rearview mirror than when you're approaching them. Tonight I want to tell you about crossroads that I came to after finishing school. I was brought up and well buttered, bred and well buttered in Killarney, County Kerry. Lovely, happy childhood. If somewhat you know, over-minded. My father, we lived about a mile from the lakes. Don't go in past your knees, you'll drown, and so on. <laughs> now, we weren't spoilt either. My mother was well able to put me in my place. The night of my Debs, myself and Kathleen, my friend, we thought we were gorgeous. <laughs> At the time, I was eight stone. I had a waist like a wasp. <laughs> Big shoulder blades. Uh, shoulder pads, and even bigger hair. We had a fantastic night, even if my date did come with roses that were quite obviously dragged out of a hedge and not a florist. <laughs> I could tell because he was sucking the blood off his finger from a thorn. <laughs> anyway, the following day, I heard my mother on the phone to Auntie Mary, and I could tell what the other conversation was on the other side. Mary was asking, how did the Debs go? Oh, they had a great night, the great night. They came in at three o'clock in the morning now and I had sausage rolls and sandwiches and pot of tea out for them and the fire stoked. And I could tell then that Mary asked, and how did she look? And my mother said, well, you know what it's like, Mary, you can't make a silk purse out of a sow's ear. Anyway, they were a lovely family, lovely. And I had wonderful friends as well at school. We had such crack. When I think about it, I was only thinking today, in fifth and sixth year, there was four of us sat two behind two at the back of the classroom in basically two square metres of space. Now, we did pay attention and we did do a bit of study, but my God, we laughed. We had such crack trying to get each other's brass straps open with a ruler. <laughs> passing notes and just that sweaty, I can't laugh because the teacher is there. And then the explosion of squeals of laughter when the teacher was out. Just fantastic times. But the leaving search came 
the results were in, and our futures were revealed. And as the months went by after leaving school, we sort of drifted apart. There was no row, there was no fighting, but despite all the, we'll be friends forever, <laughs> we drifted, life bringing us to where we needed to be. Apprenticeships, jobs, an early marriage. And I got my dream come true. I finally got a place to train as a nurse. And the day that I left for Cork City, I was very much aware that I knew nobody in Cork. I knew nobody starting nursing training with me. When I got there, I met the other 18 girls. They were all from Cork. And there was a sort of a tenuous connection between them all. Her dad was in the same tennis club as her dad, and their mammies went to school together, and they were vaguely related. It was like a big, sticky spider web of corkness. <laughs> and I felt alone. I felt different. I felt apart. It was a tough training. We, we, it was compulsory to live in the nurse's home, which was physically attached to the hospital and to the School of Nursing. And I kept my distance from the girls, not sure if I was part of them. And it was a bloody hard day's work, the sadness of life, of, of humanity. And I'm not ashamed to say I often came home and cried myself to sleep in my little room we were all separate bedrooms along a long corridor and a shared bathroom and shared sitting room. I went out with the girls. It was inviting for go out for coffee. There was invitations to go to the, to the discos. And I went, but I still felt I'm, not, I'm still a part, still not quite part of the gang. And then one October night, I was just so stressed. I was on night duty, and it just happened that the night I was on was the night the clocks were going back, and it made my 12-hour shift a 13-hour shift, making our 84-hour week an 85-hour week. I was stressed. I felt the responsibility on my shoulders of minding my patients so heavily. My staff nurse went down to help out in A&E. The office phone rang. I thought, Jesus, are we going to get another A&E casualty? Jesus, how are we going to manage this? I picked up the phone and announced to myself, student nurse McCarthy, St. Anthony's Ward. And then I heard it. Close your eyes, give me your hand, darling. Do you feel my heart beating? Hey, Smurf! We love you. We're down in Clonakilty and we're having the crack, but we miss you, girl. We miss you something wicked. Come here. Are you off next weekend? Because we're off. I said, yeah, I'm off next weekend. Mighty. We're going. The gang is back together. I listened to them breaking back into another Banana Rama song. <laughs> Their laughter trickled down through the phone. The three of them stuck into a public phone box in Clonakilty ringing me, missing me, wanting me as part of their gang. I said, will you go away before you get me fired? 
I'll see you next weekend. I put the phone down. And I pulled my cardigan around me and walked down to see my patients. And I met Jack, aged 80, shuffling up with his IV drip towards the loo. Well, there's a lovely smile for four o'clock in the morning, he said. I said, Jack, I've just found something very precious. Well, girl, if you find something precious, hold on to it. Hold on to it. What that call did for me, it lifted me. It enveloped me into the gang, my friends. I opened up to them and we realized we were all finding our training really hard. But we started supporting each other more now that we knew how each other felt. We supported each other with the good times. I resourced somebody today and he's doing great. Woo! <laughs> or the a male patient today had an involuntary erection while I was trying to do a pubic shave. <laughs> Jason Marais will say he'll have a black eye in the morning. <laughs> and then there was the sad days, and they were more often than you would imagine. We remember one day, myself and Anna, we were working in the kiddies' ward, and a beautiful little boy, three years of age, he was just coming back from theatre after a procedure. And now that his little boy was back safe in his bed, his dad went down the four flights of stairs for a badly needed cigarette and a coffee. And the little boy arrested. And we tried everything. Everything. Over and over. But he slipped away. And when nothing could be done, myself and Anna fell into each other's arms and hugged each other. Grief struck with this loss. And there, down the long corridor, came his dad. Saw us. Didn't even have to be told. Just ran up. No, no, please, no. If I didn't have my girl gang to support me that evening, I would have been broken. So, what's the end of the story? Our friendship is 35 years old, older than a lot of people in this audience. <laughs> we had the best crack ever during our training days. We'd head out clubbing. We'd go for the garlic burgers. And then those of us who were in the best condition would bring those in a worse condition home in a Dunstore's trolley. We're all, well, I was going to say middle-aged, but I don't think I lived to 112. <laughs> Two of the girls have had to be blue-lighted to hospital with various faints and stuff, and one has had a brain scan, so I'm still standing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That friendship is precious. And if any of you are lucky enough to have a friendship like that, hold on to it. Your friends will hold up a mirror to you and you will see what they like. You will see what they love and you'll start to like yourself. Thank you.
Mairead Murphy, our final storyteller of the night. And so ended the Dublin Story Grand Slam 2022. The theme of the evening was precious and I think each and every single one of those seven stories that you've just heard were so precious to us. They were like little, amazing, incredible gifts. They were Martin Hughes, Michelle Lucy, Daisy McCarthy, Emma Lynch, Aisha Saida, Kieran Casey and Mairead Murphy. At the very end of the Grand Slam, we invited the reigning Grand Slam champion from way back in 2019, Catherine Brophy, to come back up on stage and to announce the winner of the Dublin Story Grand Slam. So here's Catherine. Jesus, I love an audience. (laughs) You saw me there, didn't you? (laughs) And I just want to say to all of you, for the rest of your lives, you're going to be able to start a sentence with, when I told a story in a packed Abbey theatre, and Kieran Casey, you're going to be able to boast about it to your pigeon son. <laughs> Thanks very much. Cheers. And so ended the Dublin Story Grand Slam 2022. Thank you so much um, to the staff and team at the Abbey, in particular Austin Holt, who was coordinated with us. Thank you, Austin, and to the amazing team there at the Abbey for making us feel so welcome. The event coordinator was Ian Mulholland, and Ian captures these beautiful photographs of the stage and that remarkable set that was from a play called The Weir by Conor McPherson. So go over to our Instagram page, at Dublin Story Slam, and you can see pictures from the night captured by Ian. A recording was by Gansey Films, who we are working with to actually record a short little kind of film uh, about the Dublin Story Slam. We'll have more about that in 2023. And of course, our wonderful judges, who I did not give a call out and who had the incredibly difficult task of giving those scores, but did such a remarkable job. Brian Hughes, Aoife Dunn and Mary-Kate Flanagan and their guests. You all did an amazing job and thank you so much. Um, that is pretty much it. If you liked what you heard and you want to be part of the fun, we start the whole process all over again. January 10th, in the Sugar Club, the theme of the evening is hope. And this time we are teaming up with First Fortnight, which is Ireland's Mental Health Arts Festival. So it's a brilliant way to check in on your own mental health, but also to kind of start a conversation about other people's and maybe some tools that you can use to kind of maintain that health as well. So visit the DublinStorySlam.com for tickets and information. And if you want to tell a story, we always want to hear them. Story at the DublinStorySlam.com. Just email us. doesn't even matter if it's for this particular story slam. We always love to talk to storytellers. Okay, so that is the end of the podcast. Uh, we will be back in 2023 with lots more stories. So if you want to hear more, make sure to give us a like and a subscribe. Have a wonderful, stress-free, relaxing Christmas holiday. And we'll talk to you in 2023. Bye.